Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Good afternoon and welcome to the latest edition of the Football Digest podcast. Uh, the dust has barely settled following England's cruel defeat on penalties to Italy in the final of the Euro 2020 at Wembley. But football never seems to stop. Just a few weeks later, and Celtic have already crashed out of the Champions League. Um, so, you know, it's just like an endless procession of football. The season's upon us almost, the Champions League. Uh, sorry, the transfer window is in full swing now. Manchester United seem to have um, made some significant signings um, ahead of the rest. So we'll discuss that um, a bit later. But um, first and foremost, I'd like to just rewind a bit, fellas. Welcome, first of all. Welcome, welcome along. Thanks for joining us. Just like to rewind a couple of weeks, guys, to um, Wembley and events at um, the final of the delayed Euro 2020. Um, another sort of glorious failure for England uh, on an emotional afternoon for various reasons. Um, we'll come on to the trouble with the fans in a short while. But Andy, can I just um, can I just ask you um, what your emotions were on that night? You know, there were, it was a rollercoaster night, wasn't it, as we thought it would be? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, actually, you know, when you were there live, the emotions obviously couldn't go off to a to a better start. Um, and you know, certainly for the first twenty minutes, uh, you know, I, I thought that it was a game England could win. Um, they were sussed out pretty quickly by Mancini and the Italians, you know, and, and after that, um, it always looked as though the Italy were going to equalise and probably go on and win the game. Um, so yeah, it was a roller coaster to, to the extent where you know, in, in the first period of extra time you thought maybe England had the edge even in the last 15 minutes of normal time so the game did ebb and flow on reflection it wasn't much of a game really was it to be fair I mean it really it, it was you know England's best move England's only real move was the move for the goal and while Italy did sort of get a foothold in midfield and and control possession like we thought they would you know that wasn't unexpected the the likes of uh, Giorgino and, um, and Verratti would get hold of it, would get a grip in that midfield. Um, they didn't create that many chances either. And the bottom line is, is that their their equaliser was a scruffy goal from a set point, set piece. You know, which which you know, as Pickford turns it round, you know, an inch or two more, it goes off the outside of the post and away for a corner rather than back in um, for Benucci to score. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I think you know, I looked at it and thought that England's England's limitations um, were were exposed in that game there, you know, and Southgate's, I wouldn't call them limitations, but his conservatism, conservatism was shown in that game by the selection, which of course you think, you know, as soon as, you know, Trippier plays a part in that opening goal, you think, well, you know, the, the selections paid off, but in the end it didn't because, you know, they didn't find a way of putting Cellini and Benucci under any sort of pressure. So, on reflection, when Southgate turns around and, and looks at that game, as I'm sure he will time and time again, then I think you know he, he will have to come to the conclusion that as good as the um, campaign was, you know, and it was good, um, they're going to have to find a way, different ways to hear teams when it gets to these big games. You know, different ways to 
to attack teams, different ways to create chances, you know, and they didn't have they, they didn't have those ways um, on well, wherever it was a few Sundays back. Um, so I think that is the the one thing he will take out. I think of that game is that England he on a broad level he has done what he set out to do, and that is to establish re-establish England as a as part of that elite bracket in international football. You know, a powerhouse of international football because they are. You know, you don't get to a semi-final of a World Cup than a final of a European Championship without being in the elite bracket. He's done what he said he wanted to do. Now he's now with the step further is to find a variety of ways to play and more importantly, find more ways to hear teams in an attacking sense and not just be the Harry Kane team. Can I just say, fellas, in my haste to um, start the England inquest, I've not introduced you. So that was Andy Dunn, Chief Sports Writer yes. of the day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we have also Matt Dunn, Football Aficionado of the Daily Express, and Neil Moxley, um, Chief Sports Writer of the Sunday People. Right, introduction complete. Um, Matt, can I just ask you, in the second half, the game obviously was going away from England and Italy had a firm grip on proceedings. The suggestion is that Southgate was too conservative, a bit pragmatic, too slow to react. Do you think that's, do you think that's fair, criticism of Southgate? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised because he did spend the whole summer talking about how it was all about uh, squad players with five substitutes. It changed the game, how it was about finishers uh, and not just starters. Uh, and yeah, I think his his substitutions were all very predictable when they came. Um, and yeah, and largely uh, not particularly inspired. I think that, as Andy says, I think that's the last bit that's missing now. He's done the hard work, the real hard work, to, if you think about where we were at the end of the last Euros, um, mm. to get us to where we are now. Uh, and that's been this sort of 19, his 99% perspiration seeing us there. What Southgate's not really shown ever is his 1% inspiration. He's never done anything that you thought, wow, you know, that, that's an amazing call or that's, you know, a genius selection or whatever, or neither have we seen a great deal of that from the players. You know, we've got these great strikers uh, and, and we've not perhaps seen the best of them. I don't think they've been given the, the freedom to play in the way that, that I think the whole country wants them to play. Uh, and I think that's, we've got to have the confidence that we are there now. We are right up amongst the upper echelon uh, and, and perhaps given the only player who's shown that sort of freedom is Jack Grealish. And that's been a, a the expense of the team dynamic, but, but perhaps we need Phil Foden to have the same belief that Jack Grealish has got. Uh, and we need Southgate to, to perhaps persuade Raheem Sterling to go even further than he did in those opening games in the big games uh, and take teams on because I, I didn't feel, I felt we were pandering to everybody else's uh, way of playing throughout the whole tournament. And I'd like to see us go into the world cup uh, and take on teams and say, right, we're England. We play this way. Um, you know, how are you going to deal with us rather than the other way around? Neil, I, I, I don't know if you felt like I did, but when when I sort of left Wembley and got home the next morning, it just felt like, crikey, what a huge opportunity that was to win something. Mm. You know, it felt like all the stars aligned for England. There was no travelling involved apart from that short trip to Rome. They had some good weather, comfortable weather, home crowd, home stadium, no injuries. No real COVID issues. It all felt like it fell into place. And, you know, it was all there for them to go and take it, wasn't it? And, you know, ultimately they came against a team that were better than them. I know that. But you just felt, I just felt like you may never see that opportunity. Well, this group of players obviously won't get an opportunity to win something on home soil again. It just felt like a big, big chance missed. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I agree with both the lads, you know, um, you know, in the end, um, I don't think Gareth looking, I didn't think on the night Gareth made the substitutions early enough. Um, and that's not with, uh, that's not with hindsight. I went on Twitter and hopefully courted faith by saying, uh, faith by saying, um, you know, Mason Mount's race is running. We need to, we need to take him off, hoping beyond hope that uh, he'd rattle one in from 25 yards and I'd be made to look the biggest fool at uh, ever had uh, picked up a pen, which which isn't an alien feeling to me, to be perfectly honest. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just think in, the, in that um, in that final reckoning, Gareth's inexperience as a manager, um, perhaps um, perhaps let him down. And, and I would point to the fact that um, I think the country would have swallowed uh, the fact that we, we might have lost to Italy 2-1, but they really would have liked to have seen well, I, I think I think they would anyway. Obviously, I can only speak for myself. But if they'd gone down with their boots on, having given free license to the likes of Jaden Sancho um, and 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 Jack Grealish a lot earlier, then I think people would have swallowed it because what was you know what was uh, apparent to me, and I still think there's a, there's slight issues with. Uh, I, I think looking back, you know, a couple of the key players. I'm looking at the likes of Mount. I'm looking at the likes of Sterling. I genuinely think now, looking back. Um, that they were a little bit tired, and they, they should have, and perhaps that they, you know, perhaps England's coaching staff should have, have sensed that because, you know, when Saka got on um, and caused um, was it Benucci to, to, to foul him, it was the first time really that the Italians had had anybody running at them since the, mm. the opening 15, 20 minutes when when we sort of run out of steam and they, they managed to get a grip with our formation and, and control possession. Um, so yeah, I, I look. I, Gareth did so much right. It's very difficult to to criticise. You know, people were talking. You know, let's not um, let's not forget people were were moaning at the start about the conservative approach, and it was that which got us through. You know, we hardly conceded a goal, but I just think in the final reckoning, the, the minus the minus touch, and that just that little bit, just that little bit of game management and experience. Um, I, I mean, let's let's just say for the sake of example, Mancini would Mancini have swapped it around had he been in Southgate's shoes? I, th- I think he probably would. I think he probably would have gambled. Um, although I have to say, you know, um, I agree with Dunny that uh, Matt, sorry Andy Dunn that um, that you know uh, Italy didn't create that much either. In, in, in you know, and certainly didn't seem to be on the front foot in in extra time. So yeah, I, I feel like you. It was an opportunity missed, and it was a it was just a crying shame really the entire day. The World Cup's not long off though, is it, Neil? Do you think you know on the back of Russia now this? Um, like Andy said earlier, we're, a, we're probably an elite footballing nation now uh, on the back of those last two tournaments. Do you think we're genuine contenders to win the World Cup? I don't, I don't, I don't, I have to be quite honest with you, Jess. I don't know about the strength of the South Americans at the moment. Um, I would venture to suggest that with it being in um, November, we would have a better chance because our players will be, you know, not as tired as they normally are because of the raft of you know, domestic and um, Champions League and uh, Europa League and whatever else that, that is thrown at them. So I, I think we are, but I, I think you, you've got to look at the reasons why we were successful. I'm not so sure, really. And again, I, I think the stars aligned for, for us in Russia, if I'm being totally honest. You know, we came away from the tournament with every jump, everybody jumping up and down, having lost, you know, I mean, if ultimately lost three matches. Um, so I, I'm not... Um, uh, so, I, 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 cautious optimism would, would be the way I would look at it, rather than sort of saying uh, beating the chest and uh, and t- you know, making a tub thumping address that we finally cracked it. I'm not exactly sure that we have. Um, Andy, um, we can't sort of look back on the final without touching on the sort of disgraceful scenes 
inside and outside the stadium, actually, um, which really ruined things as an occasion. You obviously had incidents of fans, you know, high on drink and drugs, mm. storming the stadium, getting in without tickets, making a mockery of the security in place there. Um, how depressing was it to see something like that on our, you know, in our country when we're hosting the final? We were in the final, and yet again, the fans obviously do whatever they can to try and ruin it. Yeah, well, it was it was astonishing, really. You know, I, I, what sort of um, surprised me in in the aftermath of it is how many people, you know, including in our business. Um, I've turned around and said that, you know, that it was an accident waiting to happen, you know, but I, I never ever saw it like that. I mean, I may be in a minority, I may be naive, I may be blinkered, but I didn't see that coming. I, I, I really didn't see that coming. Okay, you you anticipated um, some drunkenness because the game was kicking off at 8 o'clock and people, were, were, you know, were on the beer quite early. But that's about all I anticipated. I didn't anticipate gates being stormed. I didn't anticipate fans getting into the stadium without tickets. Um, I didn't anticipate the whole place smelling of dope, by the way, either. Um, and you know, I didn't envision them fighting amongst each other. I didn't. I didn't envisage lawlessness. I mean, I just did not see that coming. You know, when I got out of my car about four o'clock, four thirty. You know, obviously we parked quite close to the stadium. You know, it was quite obvious then that this whole day was going wrong, you know, and in a way I, you know, I, I felt a little bit sorry for the, I do feel a little bit sorry for the FA because right up to that point, you know, and we know, and we speak to people at the FA and right up to that point, I remember going to uh, the England camp on the Friday before the Sunday game and speaking to people from the FA and, and they were, you know, those of us who regularly might criticise the FA for various things, you know, they were saying, well, you know, isn't it about time we got some praise for the way this, this whole England campaign has been organised from the way Wembley has been organised. And, you know, I agreed. You know, I, I didn't... We were at Wembley for every game. I never saw that coming. And then, of course, while they're sitting back probably and thinking, you know, this has been great from an FA's point of view, it all goes completely and utterly spectacularly, horribly wrong on that final day. You know, if you're looking for blame, and yes, the FA and the, the stewarding was, was, was inadequate. The policing was, well... I mean, you know, sort of absent, I guess, you know, from what I could see for most of it. Um, clearly, the ticketing system didn't work properly. Um, so, you know, a perfect storm. But the bottom line is you can put blame on all of those. That's fine. And you can say that, okay, the kickoff was too late and people have been able to drink all day. Fine, yeah, yeah. But you still expect people to behave, you know, like civilised human beings. You know, I mean, I mean, it's as simple as that. In the end, you know, you're either feral or you're not. And I was surprised how many sort of feral individuals were there ruining that ruining that occasion for everyone else. Matt, we've we've obviously travelled around the world to loads of different stadiums down the years. How many times have you? I mean, I, I can recall dozens of places I've been to where stadiums actually do have a ring of security, like a perimeter ring around before big games, so fans can't even get within fifty hundred meters of a stadium. Can that what they, it doesn't seem like a a difficult problem to fix, does it? Because other other countries seem to manage it. Why can't we? I mean, yeah, it was a surprise, but you've got to remember Wembley. No one ever used to go to before 
the game anyway because there was nothing there. So perhaps there's a culture of not having to worry about fans congregating mm-hmm. outside the ground, which has changed now that there's so many bars and cafes uh, there, which I think makes the whole match day experience on a good day a lot more pleasant for everybody. I think the one thing that you sort of think in hindsight is it was absolutely clear from the sort of times we arrived there were so many people in Wembley Way that there was no way that they all had tickets and they were all matchgoers. And, and I do think somebody in authority should have thought, you know, what's going to happen, say, as we get towards kickoff, where are these fans going to go? Have they got somewhere to watch the game? And it's not a big shock that a certain you know, proportion of them who'd been drinking all day suddenly thought, well, hang on a sec, we might be able to get in. And I think when they saw how many ticketless fans were congregating around the stadium, somebody should have thought, you know, we've got to make sure that, that the stadium's secure because that's going to be an obvious target. Um, and, I, and I do think that, that there was enough time to realise that a situation was getting out of control. That, that would be one of my, my sort of initial criticisms. But like you say, and that is why with ultimate hindsight, you know, let's do it all again. You wouldn't allow that many fans to get that close to the stadium so that the temptation's there. And I mean, it's a shame that you have to put those impositions then in place to stop the mindless morons from spoiling it for everybody else. Because I thought for the semi-final, um, it was a fantastic atmosphere, felt a lot more family-like, and it was great having England fans, you know, having a, a, a quiet drink and and uh, maybe even a slightly noisy one, but not to the levels that we got to the final. Uh, and I, I think that made the, the whole match day experience a lot more pleasant. And, and if we can achieve that as a as a country, I mean, we've got to look at ourselves as well as people. Is that not what we want as England fans going to the game? You know, if we can all behave, we can all have a good time, and actually Wembley can be a fun place to go. Um, which it hasn't always been. So, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see how, what this report finds. But but the, the bottom end of it, as Andy says, is that there's, there's the fans have got a, you know, what sort of people are we? Uh, and why why should we cater for this lawlessness when, when all we've got to do is just grow up a little bit? Mark, just before we go on to talk about the transfer window and the new season, which is not far off, can I just ask you, what, what what damage do you think those scenes have done to England's hopes of staging a World Cup in the not-too-distant future? Because I know they want to do one soon. Well, you know, uh, just to pick up very slightly for, for, for answer that question, I mean, the only thing I, I would add to what Matt and Andy have said is that there was a slight suggestion um, from the game against Denmark that there were one or two people who'd actually managed to get their, come their way in. And then afterwards was, you know, thanks to the um, thanks to social media, you know, the uh, suggestion that um, a wide wide scale um, break in the perimeter might be might be might be possible. And that's the only thing I can say that the you know the authorities really should have you know thought about it because nobody, not not anybody in the press, you know, nobody highlighted the fact that it could be an issue um, in the press. Nobody clearly. Thought it could be an issue amongst the authorities. That's the UEFA. That's the FA. That's the police. That's the stewarding. Um, you know, so it, it, it was little. And once it was set in motion, I mean, you know, uh, you, by the time um, and I remember seeing Andy in, in the car park, there was this uh, fog of just and it just uh, that was surrounded. You know, the Wembley Way. What was going on? It was just you could just sense it. You could smell it. Anybody who's been a a regular football goer just just knew it was it was primed to to, to kick off and, and by then the situation really and truthfully speaking has already been lost but 
notwithstanding that, you know, I think it's done. Uh, I think it's done some damage. I mean, it'd be, be, be foolish to think otherwise. Um, but I, I do think that you know, there's got to be in terms of apportioning blame. You know, we, we've been told throughout this was a UEFA event. I know the FA are massively complicit in putting on this event on, on UEFA's behalf. So I just wonder whether or not, in the cold light of day. UEFA might take some, you know, well, they won't take any blame, will they? But but whether or not any blame that's put upon England might be tempered by the fact that UEFA themselves were meant to be staging this uh, competition and that they that they too had come up short with respect to the security. So, yes, I think it will have damaged it. Um, I don't think too many people will be looking too fondly. But then, you know, Wembley Stadium has for years staged big football matches, Champions League finals, you know, European European uh, Championship games back in '96 without too many problems, and indeed in this in this tournament without too many problems. So I'd hate to think it was the you know defining factor in us not getting the you know not getting the World Cup. But, but to say it's it's not damaged, it would be foolish, I think. Andy, just a little aside: a news story that's come out of the game this week is that um, mm. all the governing bodies who run the game um, in England have recommended that professional footballers are limited to ten high force. Headers in training in a week um, under new guidelines. Um, it comes obviously after recent multiple studies were conducted into the concerns about the long-term dangers ahead in the football. We all know about, you know, the people, the many sort of great former players we've had who are suffering from dementia or even died of dementia. This has to be a, a really positive move forward, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, well, yes, it does. Uh, you know, and certainly heading in in junior games and junior practice. It's something that's being addressed and, and, and needs to be addressed uh, fully. Um, I don't. I, I mean, yes, I, I, I welcome the move, but I, I, I find it sort of um, quite difficult to see how it's going to be exactly policed or enforced. I guess you know, really, they, they can do no more than than recommend these things. You know, there might be regulations, but how do you enforce? You know, a training ground regulation that says that you can only limit to ten headers. If the balls come 25, 35 yards or whatever the stipulation is, um, I think you know if it's emblematic of them taking the situation seriously, then it's a good thing. I do think it's such such a such a tough subject, such a, a difficult um, issue for the authorities to be seen to be doing the right thing with. Because let's face it, you know the bottom line is that you know heading is part and parcel of the game. You know we were we were. You know, celebrating Harry Maguire's head of the Euros, for example. Um, you know, I, I, we saw some great examples of some great headers in that tournament, and you know, you, you get that good at heading it by by repeating it. You know, and that that is one of the issues. So, I think the problem you have going forward is, you know, it's so tricky. And let's face it, I I, I think genuinely, I genuinely think, and it won't be in it won't be in my lifetime um it might not be in another lifetime but you know going forward i i think we will eventually maybe in you know decades or centuries to come we will eventually see heading maybe outlawed from the game itself i mean i mean completely um because you know while it remains a part and part of the game people will continue to head it in training you know and while we would like to see it you know not as prevalent in in the junior games you know, kids who can head the ball well, you know, it, it, it's it's still seen as an asset to their game moving forward. And they want every asset they can get because, you know, everyone, every kid who plays dreams of being a professional footballer. So, yes, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, 
again, it's just a subject I find really difficult to to know to know exactly what to do. Short of saying, listen, the long term aim is is to is to eliminate heading from the game. Well, Andy touched on it earlier. How do you think clubs will implement this recommendation? And if they do, are they going to have to employ people to actually stand on the sidelines counting how many times the player has headed a ball? in a training session is that I mean it, it seems a bit you know illogical really doesn't it sounds a perfect job for another intern doesn't it that they these these yeah. people that they drag in don't pay any money and and uh, and uh, just get to count the headers uh, it, it's it's great that football finally having had its bottom kicked by this parliamentary um, mm. inquiry uh, is finally making a move, but it's a ludicrous move for them to make. Yeah, like you say, who's going to stand there and count 10 headers? And then the corner goes in, you say, well, you better get upfield because you're not allowed to head this one. And, uh, you know, or, or cross mm. comes in, it's head height. And, and you think, well, I could bury this. Oh, no, I've got to try and do a bicycle kick because I'm up to my quota. Um, I think there should be more work and more money, which is what football does have at the top flight. Um put into a bit more research because the big gap between what the FA have funded, which is this field um, research that they did 18 months ago, which found up in Scotland that death records showed that three and a half, you were three and a half times more likely to have dementia as a cause of death uh, if you're a professional footballer than a, than a member of the general population, which is an absolutely staggering statistic, by the way. Three and a half times. Normally, these scientific studies say there's 10% more risk. This is three and a half times more likely. So there, there is something massive going on. The problem we don't know is what it is. I don't know if Diego Maradona bouncing the ball 50 times on his head, whether that's doing more damage than one great big slabhead Maguire header. No one knows because we don't know what's happening to the brain. And that's the big problem that we've got is there's not enough knowledge and there's enough science to find out why, if it's heading that's dangerous, why it's dangerous. And that's what the Premier League should be doing. That's what the top five should be doing. By all means, count how many headers that players are doing in um, training because 10 years down the line, that might be quite useful. You might find, yo, this fella's got dementia. Do you know what? He was one of the, you know, he did most headers there. We should be spending money there. So to make an arbitrary, I mean, because nine headers is okay, by the way, a week, as it stands at the moment. Of course, we don't know that, do we? We're just plucking numbers out of the air to make it look like we're doing something. Uh, And I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think it needs to be more focused. I think uh, it needs to be more driven and it, may, it needs to make more sense because, you know, it's great that the kids don't head the ball so much. And, and in, abs- in a general thing, yes, it's great that people aren't heading the ball as much as they should. But but just to put an arbitrary limit in, it just, it just seems like a mess. And I just hope that football aren't going to lean on this and say, look, we've done something because they haven't really. They're, they're, they're just messing around with it. And, and I think something a bit more serious needs to be to be done in this area because 20 years ago, Jeff Assel um, had heading footballs put uh, down as his cause of death and then nothing happened for about 18 years. And that's the big disgrace football has to live with. Uh, and we, we need to catch up a bit faster than this latest sort of legislation seems to be doing. Box, right, let's talk about the new season. On a scale of one to ten, how excited are you? 
Well, we've only just finished the last one, so the juices aren't yet flowing, are they, mate? But, um, yeah, no, I mean, listen, you know, I thought against the general uh, backdrop of the pandemic that uh, teams weren't going to spend a lot of money, but, um, you know, clearly, clearly, how wrong can you be? I mean, um, but, you know, the, the big boys are uh, arming themselves again. And, um, yeah, but uh, it seems to be quite targeted recruitment. They're not going out and bought four or five, most of them. They've got what, gone out and bought, you know, one or two. Um, and to be honest with you, yeah, I mean, look, we're, what, two two weeks away from the kickoff and teams are still, you know, the squads are still being assembled. There's one or two outstanding transfers, I think, that'll get done. Can I ask you about... Um, sorry. Yeah, sorry, go on, mate. No, I just wanted to ask you about United. Man U, obviously, they've, they've made two significant... Well, they've made one significant sign and they're closing in on another with... Varane. So they've signed Sancho and it looks like they're going to be getting Rafael Varane. They are two, you know, really sort of landmark signings, aren't they, in, in this window because there's not been a lot of massive transfer activity and they are two top quality players. Does that does that tell you way, how United see the task of closing, trying to close the gap on City above them for, for, for the next season? Yeah, I think I think so, mate. I'm, I'm slightly. Um, I, I think San- what Sancho will do, and I think it was what Gareth um, Gareth Southgate did in that Ukraine game that, that Andy and I went to. Was sort of. Uh, I think their problems have come seemingly um, last season at least um, at Old Trafford rather than away from Old Trafford, where they've been able to uh, string all those victories together. And I think Sancho will possibly enable. Uh, be another, be somebody else other than Bruno Fernandes to open the, the key to the door. There is a third transfer I'd like to see um, at Manchester United this summer. To be honest with you, mate, I'd like to see Paul Parker believe. I'm I'm just I'm just not having him um, as you know as a as a potential um, a pivot of a of a successful side or somebody that Manchester United you know Manchester United performs Manchester United week in week out. I, I just think he performs when he feels like it. Um, to be honest with you, I just think he's, he's a distraction. I'd rather, I think Varane is possibly, you know, um, when they get him in, he's possibly going to turn out to be the most important signing this season for a whole host of reasons. They've clearly had a problem at uh, that right side of centre-half for a couple of years now. And you look at Varane's um, CV, uh, he's got three of the league titles on him, four Champions League winners' medals. Um, he's a winner. And he's, a World Cup. Yeah, in the World Cup, he's been there. He's, he's won pretty much everything worthwhile there is to winning the game. He's 20, uh, 28 years of age. Um, he's, he's a, you know, a, you, you don't get, you, you know, for 40 odd million quid. I mean, that's, that's by the, today's standards, I'm not, you know, playing down the, uh, the, the actual outlay, but, but by today's standards, that's an absolute steal. So, yeah, providing the platform, the confidence to move forward, you know, in terms of the, um, the great defensive partnerships of old, that uh, Manchester United have built a lot of their success upon. Personally, mate, I think I think Varane's arrival could be could be could be a real key key feature of uh, what uh, what they bring to the table this season. Andy, what's your view on the Pogba situation? Mox touched on it. I mean, it, it, look, he, he played well for France in the games. Yeah. He was involved in at the Euros, uh, which is obviously a huge shot window for somebody like him. Apparently, he's not signed a new contract. He's been fluttering his eye, eyelashes at PSG by the looks of it. Is it? Is it? I mean, he's been at United five years now and they've not come close to winning the title yeah. in that time. I mean, I know they finished second last year, but they were way behind Man City, really, realistically. So is it, if you were United, would you say, right, it's time to cut our losses and try and move him on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think probably 
I don't know. I know myself and Mox, and, and I think yourself, we've all written columns saying that, 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 you know, enough's enough, really. You know, and other columnists have done it. You know, it's come to that stage now where 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 Solskjaer should be thinking, you know what, if he's not going to sign a new deal, then he's got a year left, you know, let's get rid of him. The one thing I would say about that, and, and I've written that, but the one thing with the caveat is that I'm not sure that United are in a position and, and it sounds, you know, everyone gets fed up with Mino Raiola touting him round, you know, when he's under contract, you know, essentially this summer it's Paris Saint-Germain. It was someone else last summer. Um, and the guy's under contract to Manchester United. It's not a good look and it doesn't it doesn't look good for Manchester United. However, having said all of that, you know, I don't think United are yet in a position where they can turn around and just say, you know, we can allow a midfielder of Pogba's quality just to go without any replacements. You know, I don't think they're that good, sadly. I don't think, you know, I think Solskjaer, from a very, very sort of um, single-minded view, Solskjaer, I mean, up in the boardroom, they're thinking, right, he's got a year left of his deal. We need to sell him. We need to try and get 40 million quid for him now because we're getting nothing for him next summer. That's easier said than done because Pogba can, you know, is quite within his rights just to turn around and say, well, I'm not going anywhere anyway. Yeah, I'm going to see out my deal and go for an absolute fortune in my pocket next summer, which I suspect is what he's going to do. You know, I, I, I really do. And so in that sense, United have got no choice. If he wants to see out his contract, he sees out his contract. Even if you don't play him for the whole season, it's not going to force him out. So... But having said that, you know, if, if 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 he does want to go to PSG, then then maybe he'll go. But I think from United's point of view, they're not they're not that good that they can turn around and say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna send away a player, a loser player of Pogba's quality. Now, no one denies that he hasn't shown it often enough over these the, the second stint of Manchester United. No one no one denies that, that that he hasn't got them close to winning the title. But he remains, you know, one of their best players. It's as simple as that. And when you've signed Varane, which, you know, is, is going to be confirmed, obviously, uh, once his personal terms are, are, are rubber stamped. When you've signed Varane, you've got a world-class centre-half alongside another world-class centre-half. When you've signed Sancho, to then lose a world-class midfielder without a replacement, I can see why Solskjaer would be loath to do that. Now, if he can get a replacement... Um, for Pogba, then, then I think he, you know he, he sends him back. You know who that would be. I don't know. There's some fanciful talk of Goretzka, but that you know that's not going to happen. I wouldn't have thought. Um, but yes, in, in answer to the question, I think Pogba. The, he's got two situations to deal with now, Solskjaer. By the way, the Pogba situation, and he needs to sort out Rashford's shoulder, and that, that, that's that, that's an, another one. But we're talking transfer window. I think yes, he should. Say to Pogba and Raiola, right enough's enough, but only if he can find um, someone who means that the absence of a player like Pogba and his quality isn't felt as keenly as it would if he doesn't get anyone in. Matt, before we move on to other clubs, um, can I just ask you, Solskjaer signed a new long-term contract last week, um, which keeps him at Old Trafford in theory, in theory, until 2024. Do you think he's earned that contract? I mean, you look at when Tuchel came in at Chelsea, Abramovich gave him 18 months, which sort of raised a few eyebrows, and that was Abramovich basically saying to him, look, win me something, mate, prove me, prove how good you actually are, and you'll get you'll get your rewards. And he went on and won the Champions League um, a few months later. So do you think do you think that was the right thing to do by United, to give Solskjaer a, a deal, you know, till 2024? Isn't that what yeah, it's like? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is increasingly beginning to feel like Manchester United's equi- Chelsea equivalent to Frank Lampard 
that he's doing a good job. But you do wonder if there's someone out there with the amount of money that they're now investing into the club who can take them on to the next level. So it still comes down to the fact that what's he done in management? Uh, and he's not one of the top world's top managers. He's done a tidy job of getting a club together. Uh, but now that they're actually spending some money on the project, you just wonder whether there's there's a Tuchel around the corner for United who could come in uh, and you know sort like Andy says sort out the Pogba situation, deal with the tough ones that, that Solskjaer still hasn't really got a grip with, uh, and do a better job. Um, you know, I admire the fact that he's got some loyalty. I never begrudge a manager getting a contract because you think they're they're ripped up easily enough, so perhaps they deserve the money. Um, but and I suppose it shows that the club's planning a long-term project rather than looking for a quick fix, which they've uh, perhaps got to do. But I, I don't know if there was any particular clamour to to tie Solskjaer up for longer. Um, so, so yeah, no, I'm sure he, he's quite happy to sign it. But, yeah, I think he's now got to be based. I mean, anyone suggesting that, that United shouldn't be title, can, you know, title contenders this season is wrong with that amount of money. If Varane comes in um, and you've got you've got a proper defence, you know, if you've got a world-class midfielder like Pogba or possibly a world-class midfielder who fancies it, and is Pogba, then, uh, and you've got people like um, Sancho and and eventually when he's fit, fully fit, uh, Rashford up front. There's not a lot in the Premier League that that would you'd put up against that mm. and say was necessarily better. So United have got to be up there, and this is the measure of Solskjaer is whether he is that good that he can get those players to contend over a season for, for that top spot because that's what he should be doing as the Manchester United manager. Mark, just moving He's across the as well, isn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. But that's why I can't understand why you give him a new contract, because he's, he's not going to kick off and, say, demand one. It just seemed it did seem a little bit, bit easy-handed. Just, just there they go. Well, you're doing an okay job. Have a bit more and a bit longer. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what, what United achieved by doing it. it, it it's... it's it, it, it's a reward. It's a pay rise, isn't it? it, it it's a, it's a reward for doing decently last season. It's a pay rise. You know, I'm sure it'll have the same stipulation in his contract that is in the last contract. It'll probably be a you know a, a, a 12 month payoff. You know, should things go wrong, and that that, that probably won't change. So the fact is, till mm. until 2024 is probably just you know, I mean, it's window dressing to a certain extent, and and it also I think just sends out a little bit of a message from United is that. No, they're not going to be sort of, um, how should we say, swayed by this popular opinion that you need a a big name manager. You, you know, they tried it with Jose, and you know, th- this in a way is almost a sort of antidote to to the Marino years. It really is. It, it's like you know, blimey, like you know, um, I haven't had you know two and a half, however long it was of Jose Marino. What we need is five or six years of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. You know, performing okay. Performing well, money still coming in off the pitch, um, playing Champions League football now, um, and I think you know they, they they like that stability. You know, it's not it's not to everyone's taste because he's not part of the you know sort of Galactico merry-go-round of managers. But you know, you know, there you go. Pochettino is, and Pochettino hasn't won anything. Same as Solskjaer hasn't. Marks, can I just move you across Manchester to the, the blue half of the champions? Um, they pretty much wiped the floor with everyone last season in the title race. Yeah, they've not made a signing yet, but that's 
not to detract from the fact that there's ongoing murmurings behind the scenes about Harry Kane and Jack Grealish <laughs> possibly going to City. But talk about Grealish. Let, let me ask you about Grealish first, because obviously he's someone you know pretty well from your time covering Villa. I, I did a column on him the other week saying basically, you know, the, the initial appeal of playing for Man City and Pep Guardiola must be huge to somebody like Grealish. But then when you boil down all the players he has at his disposal, you think, how often would he play at Man City? Um, he wouldn't play every week, probably. He would, certainly wouldn't start every week. Because you can reel off six or seven attacking players that he already has in his squad. A, do you think that transfer will happen? And B, would it be a, would it be a wise one for Grealish? Uh, yes, I do think it will happen. Um, and will it be a wise one for Grealish? Uh, yes, I do think it will be because I think um, uh, Pep Guardiola will take him to a different level. And I think the, the fact that he's actually sort of counted as a first amongst equals with the likes of Kevin De Bruyne um, pl- playing playing with him, who he, who he idolises, um, will you know will have a major effect on the, the player he is. I mean, make no mistake. In fairness, I think it was Jamie Carragher last year on Sky who came up with. Some um, some stats to suggest that um, in terms of ball carrying, in terms of killer passes, assists, goals, all the rest of it, that um, Eden Hazard was the closest thing to to to, to Jack Grealish. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I, I think that um, that there'll only be good things come from his move. Yes, he'll, he'll have to contend with something that he's not put up with before, which he's been. Uh, until he obviously made the England squad, um, which has not been an automatic uh, first name on the team sheet every week. But uh, I think, you know, as the medals rack up um, and stack up, I think he'll be able to live with himself. Um, you know, look, this is, a, you know, this is a kid who's, you know, potentially, you know, at the moment, probably done as much as he can for Aston Villa. Um, I don't, you know, no man, no. Would I love him to stay? You know, as a Midlander, I live in the area and all the rest of it, and he's a solid old boy. So, yes, yes, I would. Um, no, no question about that. But in terms of his career... You know, he's 25 now. You know, he loves the Champions League nights. If you look down his Instagram feed, you know, there's always references to Champions League. It's where he sees himself playing eventually. And although there's been no, um, there's been no sort of words out of his mouth to say he's staying or he's going, because basically that would weaken any bargaining position he'd got with Villa over a potential new contract they're trying to stick in front of him at the moment. Um, I, I do expect the transfer to happen. Uh, I'm just, what we're sort of um, really uh, we're sort of waiting for are the, are the you know are the, are the sort of details surrounding it. But yeah, I think Jack Grealish is a he's a, an absolutely wonderful player, and uh, quite frankly, I think he'll be he'll be uh, he'll, he'll go to another level at Manchester City. And and the other thing as well, Jess, to take into consideration, Gareth Southgate can leave out Aston Villa's captain. When he's um, when he's uh, you know when he's not he's not winning trophies you know uh, major tournaments. If if Jack Grealish ends up winning the Champions League, the Premier League, the League Cup, which Guardiola seems to have got the copyright on at the moment, and pretty much everything else under the sun, it becomes a very difficult thing for him to do to leave out such a an influential player. So yeah, look, he may have to put up with not playing every week. But you know Manchester City play every three or four days anyway, so he's only going to be you know he's going to be playing on a week to week basis. So yeah, I expect the transfer to happen. And I think it'll be good for Grealish and Man City. And can I ask you if City also sign Harry Kane, which clearly looks like it's going to happen as well? Can we just write off next season's title race and just give it to Guardiola now then? Well, uh, it's a little bit. It's, you know, it's listen. It's a little bit early to say that because two two players will be coming out, won't they? But look, look I, I, let's put it like this, mate. I wouldn't be putting my money anywhere else. 
Andy, can you see Kane ending up at City? Because they actually played Tottenham on the first game of the season. Yeah. I wonder if he's lining up in a light blue shirt uh, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. It would be. Uh, first thing to say, first, Mox has already read my column for tomorrow's Daily Mirror, in particular <laughs> on Jack Grealish and City. In particular, that last piece, that last bit that Mox has just said, is, is about the England situation. Absolutely spot on, I think that is. Because, you know what, throughout the whole tournament... Jack Grealish and Gareth Southgate were a pain to say how wonderful and brilliant their relationship was. Gareth's a great boss, says Jack. Jack's a great player, says Gareth. But you still came away from that tournament knowing that actually, deep down, Southgate is still not 100% convinced by Jack Grealish. If Jack Grealish goes to Manchester City and proves himself to Pep Guardiola, proves he can do the hard yards for Guardiola, proves he can perform in the biggest of games, Proves he's got that tactical discipline that Guardiola demands. If he proves all those things to Pep Guardiola, then even Gareth Southgate will be impressed. And bear in mind, Jack Grealish is 26 in about, I think, six weeks' time, early September. And, you know, it's, so, so he's 27 going to, and he's yet to play in a World Cup. So he'll be 27 when he goes to this World Cup. You know, he hasn't got, he's still, in a way, bracketed in this, you know, class of young English talents. Well, He's not, you know. There's a there's a generation below him. Let's put it that way. You've got more time. So, so I think Mox is absolutely spot on with that with the Grealish City thing, and I can see that happening. The Kane, the Kane one, and you know, I, I, yes, because one, I believe that Kane would not have done what he's done, um, and basically given everyone the green light to say that he wants out of Tottenham Hotspur without having without having something lined up, you know. And and I look around and I think, well, it can only be City, you know, surely. I just think that, you know, the idea of City paying, you know, in excess of, say, 120 million or even in excess of 100 million for Kane just doesn't sort of fit in with, with the way I've seen them operate or the way what I hear from City. You know, if, if, if you ask me to say, will it happen, then I think it probably will. But I just, again, it's one that I just look at and I think, well, you know what? Are they really going to pay? You know, as 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 one newspaper suggested, um, uh, was it last week? You know, one hundred and sixty million pounds. I just I can't see that. I cannot see it. You know, that might be a headline figure, and that might be a figure that, that you come to if he if he wins the you know the Ballon d'Or every year and City win the Champions League every year. But I still just have reservations about whether that's going to happen. And in answer to your question uh, to Neil there about uh, if they get Kane and Grealish, well, I think you probably can. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know. Kane didn't look a £160 million player in, in the Euros. But I think in a team that creates as many chances as City do, then then, then, then he, he will make some serious hay. But I, I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I think Grealish will definitely go. I'm still not sure about Kane. Matt, you, you deal with Tottenham quite a lot. Um, if Levy got £160 million for Kane, that would be the deal of the century, wouldn't it? Oh, his stuff is snap their hands off. For all that they say, he's not for sale. He's not for sale. He's not for sale. I'll tell you one thing for sure. There is no way on earth that Harry Kane is turning up at White Hart Lane on the 15th of August in the Manchester City shirt. That's for certain. Uh, the, for, for so many reasons. First of all, Levy wouldn't want to do it. Um, and secondly, um, as they did with Bale, if he has got it in mind to sell him, he won't want other clubs to know that they've got that windfall coming before he finds all the replacements. They'll do exactly what they did with Bale, which was sell him actually right at the end of the transfer window, having already pre-signed everybody else, all the replacements. Mm. And that was the kind of final piece of the jigsaw. So he, there's no way Harry Kane's going early 
to Manchester City, certainly not before the start of the season. Um, that's the first thing. Um, and like you say, but if Manchester City, that's still dangling £160 million pounds, uh, at the end of August, then it makes no sense not to. Um, however good he is, the trouble that they've got is, historically, they've never had any strikers, let alone a good striker. I mean, that's his first problem, is he's got to sign somebody who looks like he could be an understudy to Kane, but is actually good enough to replace him without sort of letting the cat out of the bag. And I'm not hearing much rumours linking. I mean, it's a... Yeah, who replaces Harry Kane? That's a that's a very difficult question. But when you've got 160 million to spend and you've got so many other players that need replacing, like they're busy doing, then I think this is the start of a new project cycle. Um Nuno Spurs' centre finally was put up for Spurs the other day, was very reluctant to explain, was very adamant that Harry Kane was going nowhere, but very reluctant to explain what promises he'd been made. Um I don't know. I, if City are willing to part with that, like you say, it's a big lump of cash for City to to splash on one player because historically, uh, as you said, Andy, I think it was um, they don't really do that. But but yeah, like and come back to the question. Yes, Levy would snap their hand off if if it was dangled, and that would be the start of a new era for Spurs where they try and just move. It's like like interval training with Spurs. They go up, you know, three steps, drop back two, and then try and build again. Uh, and, and I think that's the that's where they are in their cycle at the moment. Um, in their bid to genuinely be one of the big clubs in Europe, like they were thought they were when they signed up for the European Super League. Mark, it's been a, it's been a strange window, hasn't it? It's, it's you know, there's, there's not been. It feels like one of those windows where, say, a Kane or a Grealish deal gets done, and then it'll sort of it'll spark a whole raft of other transfers elsewhere. Do, do you get that feeling? Because I mean, Chelsea, it's not been much going on at Chelsea, Arsenal. I'm just looking at Liverpool, have only made one signing this season. I know they're getting Van Dijk and Gomez back, which is obviously feels like two new signings. But is that? Is this a, is this something that COVID has created where obviously there's been a huge financial impact on clubs and we all wrote or feared or believed that there wouldn't be any massive, massive deals done around Europe even um, this summer? And it's panning out like that so far. I know there's still a few weeks to go, but do you get the feeling that clubs are reluctant to spend money? Yeah, I, I think it was David Moyes um, at the end of last season who said that the football's got no money. Um, the, the big clubs, will, will, you know, will always have money for a variety of different reasons. The top, you know, the top six with the top four or five would anyway. Um, you know, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who renewed their season ticket Arsenal and they were telling me it was three, three grand and I was thinking, <laughs> no wonder they've got some money to spend. But um, yeah, I, I, listen, I... I I, I, I think there'd be a trickle effect. There normally is uh, in the summer. It normally works like that. You just don't realise it because people are doing a lot more business. I do think there's a, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, the brakes have been put on a little bit with respect to some of the wages as well, which I, th- I think is a good thing uh, for a whole host of reasons. But yeah, I, I genuinely, I mean, look, look at the mid-table sides. There is not a, not a great deal. There's a lot of balancing of the books going on. There's a lot of, you know, Wolves got rid of Rui Patricio and brought a a, a goalkeeper in from Olympiacos and for a slightly smaller fee, and um, you know, been able to do a little bit in the. Bit. I think there's just a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of balancing of the books going on. But yeah, once you know, if they end up getting 80, 90, 100 million pounds for Grealish, you, you can expect them to, to to spend that quite quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think football is is taking a he's taking a bit of a 
it's, it's drawn its breath, really, apart from obviously the one or two of the big clubs and, uh, and, and like I say, balancing the books within clubs themselves, um, you know, as to the season ahead, hopefully when this uh, stadium is full of fans again. Andy, can I just ask you, have you come to terms with the fact that Rafa Benitez is the new Everton manager? <laughs> it's a tough one, I think, for any Evertonian to come to terms with. Um, probably now, I think Evertonians are more trying to come to terms with the fact that they sign a big-name manager um, to follow a big-name manager. And so far, um, they've signed Andros Townsend and Damari Gray, um, which, you know, with respect to Townsend and Gray, to 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 fine players, they're not exactly the marquee players that I think Evertonians believe that Mishiri, um should be going for and has clearly got the money to go for. And that sort of fits in with Neil's point that, that you know, football is balancing the books. You know, even someone like Far Mishiri, clearly with the with the backing of Usmanov, um, are, are, are you know are having to balance the books as well. Hence why they're looking for bargains in, in the likes of Townsend, Gray, um, and obviously a backup goalkeeper in um in Begovic. Um so I think you know Benitez will Listen, you know my reservations about Benitez don't necessarily on on just um, uh, because of his connections with with Liverpool, but the reservations are um, that his best days are behind him. Simple as that. You know, the the, the, the while he did okay at Newcastle, um, they didn't play a particularly great brand of football, and then he went to China and and, and did did nothing in China. Basically, won twelve out of thirty eight games in China, and. You know, has come back and has got a plum job that I don't particularly think um, he was the best man for the job. So, as that, regardless of whether or not, you know, he had his halcyon days um, across Stanley Park 15, 16 years ago. So, I think, and, and so he's got a big job. And we're talking transfer window at the moment. Everton haven't done, um, although they have done a couple of signings, like I've just mentioned, it's they're still not signings that, that are going to transform them into a, a team that's going to challenge for the top four. But you never know, Rafa might work some sort of magic. Mark, can I just ask you about Declan Rice? He had a, obviously had a stellar tournament with England. Some of his performances were on a different level, really, from what we've seen from him in the past. So his stock's never been higher. Do, do you think he'll stay at West Ham another season, or do you think he's one of those guys who's had a taste of the, the highest level of football and thinks, you know what, I want, I want to be playing in the Champions League. I want to, I want to be, you know, I want to be, I want to be competing for trophies. Um, it depends on who wants to take him. That's a problem. I mean, you say he had a stellar tournament in the final. You know, the, the man who was in the uh, uh, team of the tournament was Jorginho. And, um, you know, he, that, he wants to go to Chelsea. So there's quite Kovacic isn't a bad player either. Mason Mount, his mate that he wants to buddy up with. You know, I don't know if Declan Rice is a player that they necessarily want to target at Chelsea as top of their list. Um, certainly not while they haven't got a striker um, who can hit the back of the net. Um, so he might not, it's one of those, you know, you can desire Champions League football all you want, but someone's got to sign you. Uh, and I, I'm not sure the fact that West Ham, they know he's their prize asset. They're not going to let him go cheap. So somebody's got to, you know, in these times as we're just talking about, people aren't splashing the cash on. Yeah, strikers are always top buck, but but for a midfielder, you know, who's going to buy him? I mean, uh, it's a serious question to you guys. I mean, are any of the yeah. clubs that you cover are they going to sign Declan Rice? I'd be surprised if Man United are interested in Declan Rice. 
Well, maybe if they, maybe if they get rid of Paul Pogba, they can. Um, maybe if they do get rid of Paul Pogba, they they can go all all, all in for Rice. Um, this, I, I I think it would do no harm. I think people might have a couple of reservations about Rice after the Euros. You know, um, I, yeah, I, I still don't think you know as an out and out holding midfielder. I think you know he does okay, but I think you've now got to bring a little bit more to your game. Um, than that, and when he did try that in the Euros, it didn't really come off. Didn't come off in the final. He's a great lad, isn't he? You know, a brilliant lad. But he is only twenty-two. I don't think. I certainly don't think, from his point of view, I don't think another season or two at West Ham and see where see where that goes would do him any harm at all. I really don't. You know, he's captain of the well when Mark Noble is is unavailable. You know, he'll be captain of that team um, and. I, I think it would do him good actually to stay there under Moyes for certainly another season, maybe another couple of seasons. Marks, can we just touch on the newcomers in the top flight this season? We've got Brentford, Watford and Norwich uh, back in the Premier League. Um, obviously, Watford and Norwich feel like they're now yo-yo clubs really, but so as Brentford are the ones that caught the eye. Um, you know, what a job Thomas Frank's done there at Brentford. They've got a new stadium. Been in the Premier League for the first time in history. How do you see their season panning out? Will they will they hold their heads above water, or do you see it being a tough a tough job to stay stay up there? Yeah, well, I, I went to the uh, the playoff final um, against Swansea, and, and they thoroughly deserved to win it. Um, it's been a long, uh, it's been the end of a long uh, road, really, hasn't it? This this project for um, oh, I can't remember his name now. What's his name? The chairman, uh, Matthew Benham. Um, and yeah. and uh, he, he's basically the one that's that's um, you know been the mastermind behind all of this. The fact that they've lost the likes of um, uh, Ben Rami to uh, West Ham and Ollie Watkins to Villa, and still been able to to put together a promotion charge was was absolutely you know astounding really by anybody's uh, stretch of the imagination. They've done it playing a certain way, so. You know, good luck to them. I mean, I, I did see the morning after uh, that playoff final victory that the uh, chairman came out and said that oh, we've got no problems. We, you know, we, we're looking for a mid-table. Um, I've got to be quite honest, as impressive that as they were against um, Swansea, that, that's just a that's just a pipe dream. If they think they're going to um, they're going to sign uh, one uh, a centre back from Celtic and uh, manage to upset the apple cart in the Premier League to that extent, um, I can't see that the, the team that. Uh, you know, play before me, you know, back in May doing that. But, but listen, I, I hope they do because I think it's a fantastic story and it just proves that once again, if you um, use your resources well, you've got a plan, you stick to the plan and you've got a bit of patience that, that you can actually get there or you can get to the promised land. And uh, like I say, uh, I think um, I think Matthew Benham deserves a, a massive, uh, massive amount of credit for what he's done with Brentford. You say that though, but surely they could take inspiration from the likes of like Sheffield United did well, didn't they, when they came back up? Leeds have done amazingly well last season. So, you know, these teams can sort of, they can sort of fight above the, the weight, so to speak, can't they, in the Premier League? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, I'm just saying, I'm making the point really that, in my opinion, from what I saw, um, you know, for, you know, uh, back in May, that I just didn't think that eleven would, um, you know, they've like I say, they've not made too many additions to it. Would be tearing up the kind of trees to to make them finish mid table. Um, y- yes, they can, but you know, it, 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 
it's not so much about actually, it's one thing to get there. It's another thing altogether to maintain the momentum over a period of years. You know, Sheffield United, you've just you've just uh, given they were a bit of a flash in the pan. Norwich have been a yo-yo club. I mean, again, they've, they've had a plan and they've stuck to it. And I think they'll come back, they'll come back stronger. Um, you know, Campbell's a good player. This, you know, Hangley's been around the block a few. You know, I mean, listen, I think I think it's um, I, and I hope they do well, Brentford. I really do because, like I say, it's one of the it's one of the um, it's what it's one in the eye for the for the big boys. Really, it proves it can be done. But um, I just don't see that. I just don't see as it stands at the moment that they, they're going to have as, as successful a season as finishing in mid table. Right, guys, just to finish. One of the great pleasures of our working lives is often being down the years, going on a pre-season tour with whatever club, a Man United or an Arsenal or a Chelsea. They tend to go to some great places like America and the Far East. Obviously, there's none of that going on this summer for obvious reasons with COVID and stuff. Although I think Everton are in Florida, aren't they? Yeah, no one else yeah. is, but just Everton are. Go around the room and ask you what your favourite memory of a pre-season tour is. Dummy. <laughs> Matt Dunn, you, 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 I, I, yeah, that's, I, 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 don't, I don't mind going. I, you know, I, obviously, Jesse, you're going to tell us about Nashville at some stage, aren't you? No, I, no, if I, no, you know, uh, no, uh, <laughs> but no, I believe that was a good trip. But I, you know, I haven't done club trips for for, for a long time. But yeah, uh, Archduke, you're above all that, aren't you? Archduke, yes, I don't, I, I he's like, yeah, but I did do. Talking to Ars Dukri, I did do David Beckham's preseason trip with Real Madrid um, in 2003, and that was Beijing, um, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Bangkok, um, and and that, and that was a heck of a trip. But I, and I think I've told a couple of stories from that before, but I, I do remember it was it was the the first ever game he played was in the Workers Stadium in Beijing, and there was no there was, there was no no press room. You were sort of sat on a on a stone step or something. It sounded it, it sort of seemed a bit fitting, really. And in the workers' stadium there, we're all there, and, and all the players stood around. We're waiting for the game to kick off, waiting for Beckham to take his first kick of the game. And this is eighteen years ago. I think it was two thousand three. Was that when he went to Real Madrid? Yeah, it, it, it was the summer he went to Real Madrid. That was his first duty. We all went over there with him, including news reporters and everyone like that. It was it, it was a great trip. And then I remember before the first, thinking, where's the ball? And a helicopter came in to just hovered above Beijing Stadium, Worker Stadium, and dropped the ball on a parachute onto the centre spot. And I thought, I've never seen it quite, honestly. And, and it, it sort of floated down gently onto the penalty spot and, and the ball becks went up and sort of kicked off, removed the, the parachute itself actually lifted off. I thought, that's incredible. I'll never see anything like that again. And then, of course, 18 years on, we see little cars taking balls to the to the centre spot. So who knows um, what next? But um, that was when I, that's the, the only time I've, I've I've ever been um, sort of starstruck, really, because we, we then spent we we then spent our two and a half weeks going from Beijing to um, Tokyo. We went to next, and of course, we were out there on the. Um, I was with the Sunday people, and I, and we were out there with the express instructions, obviously, to get an interview with. With David Beckham, but he was going round, and and he said to us, "Listen, I can't do it because Perez, the president of Real Madrid, wouldn't allow him to do it." He said that when you speak, your first interview must be with the with, with the Madrid press, yeah. you know, which which yeah. sort of understand, you know. Um, but the trip's going on and on. Our desk back home saying, "You know, what exactly are you doing in Beijing?" <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know any chance of any words from the ball? Bex was like, ah, no, well, yeah, mm, 
yeah, we're trying, we're trying, like, you know, so anyway, so we've been out there for two weeks, like, not lying from Bex, we're coming up with all sorts of stories. Anyway, they're playing Hong Kong on a, fr- a Hong Kong Select 11 on a Friday night, and we're staying in um, number one, number one, number one Hong Kong or something, anyway, some beautiful hotel, stunning hotel, Real Madrid team are in there as well. So it's a Friday, the paper's coming out on a Sunday, obviously they're playing, so we see Beckham's agent in the lift and we see to him, listen, you know, we are really getting some heat back home. We really need to speak to Bex, you know, and there's me, there's a um, guy from the Sunday Mirror, I think there was a guy from, actually, the dailies were there. But anyway, so 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 we said, he said, okay, he'll do it after tonight's game. Come and see us in the tunnel. They won 5-0, this Hong Kong Select 11, a real one 5-0. We bombed down, see Bex, there's an absolute, anywhere you go, as you know, there's a mob around him, you know, especially in Asia, and you can't get near him. So no chance of that. So so we we, we, we speak to his agent, and um, I think at the time, it was a guy called Jamie Jarvis at the time. Anyway, but we speak to him. We say, listen, mate, we're, he says, right, he's staying in the same hotel with you. He said, what, what room are you in? Right, number 461, right. He'll call you in the room, and you, he'll do it then. Yeah, right, of course. I best will get back. So get back, sat by the phone, like looking at the phone, you know, and he calls, and, and, and his specs, you know. Oh, right. Oh, brilliant. No. Oh, yeah. He said, look, I can't do it. I can't do it. He says, I've, I've asked, you know, and the president said I can't do it. And I'm absolutely gutted. But he says, listen, I'll tell you what. He says, listen, I'll, I'll explain everything. Come down to the bar for the pint. <laughs> oh, right, okay. And, and I said, it's the only t- So go down, go down back to me. He comes down, and whatever. He says, do you mind if the lads, you know, come in? And, and it's like. Roberto Carlos and like Figo. I'm like, after half an hour, you know, he says, about this interview, I'm like, oh, mate, forget about the interview. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like, it's the only time, you know, it was that day with Dunny, basically. And um, yeah, and that was that was a great preseason trip. And we never did get the interview. And we went, then went on from Hong Kong to, to I think it was Bangkok and, um, and came back um, two and a half weeks and no line from, from Bex. More, but, um, more glorious failure, Dunny. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't even that glorious to be honest with you. It was completely inglorious failure. But, um, but no, following never fun. But yes, so that's my, those, that, you, I think that was my last preseason trip to be honest with you. I, I wonder why they don't send me anymore because they, <laughs> they know, they know, yeah, they know they my speciality. Matt, you've been on loads of tours, haven't you? I've uh, been on one or two. I, I remember talking about decadence. Um, the express, I wasn't talking about decadence. Well, all parachuted into... You know, oh, yes, go on, yes, sorry. Overblown gestures. Um, I went to uh, cover Manchester City 2010, uh, where the paper insisted that we went on the official tour that no one else had gone for because it was too expensive, and, and then surprised everyone by turning up at all the press conferences in a stretch limo, which was part of the package. So that was quite fun. And and say, I'll give you a lift to, to uh, colleagues for other papers and watching him walk past outside because he couldn't believe we were, we were all sat in this this stretch limo. So that was uh, a tour to remember. And, and cocktails on Manhattan rooftops and things like that with Manchester City saying, yeah, we're just the poor neighbours. We're just the honest club that just want to battle with Manchester United back before they'd done anything. Um, which was tremendous fun. But the, the favourite was uh, the very first ever pre-season tour. Uh, I'd just been asked to go and cover Leeds uh, in under George Graham's final months. And as a favour to the sports editor, Mr Rob Shepherd, uh, who we all know well, um, George Graham had said I could come along. And uh, goodness knows where they found the second hotel in this town in Sweden. Um, it, in, a, in a tour, would you believe it, 
um, organised by Runa Hauger uh, just four years after the Bung scandal. He's organising Leeds pre-season tour when George Graham's in charge. How football does this, I don't know. Um, so, so I'm in this this second hotel, the quietest backwater ever. Nothing going on. I mean, why it needed two hotels, I don't know. And then on the Saturday, it was it was hair down day for the players. I was strolling up to training with them, just having a chat, getting to know everyone. And then yeah, on Saturday it was hair down. They had this this festival, this mu- local music festival. I kid you not, I've never seen a more aesthetically pleasing queue of people waiting to go into to a music festival. Every stereotype of Sweden was there in this queue. And I was in the VIP area with all the Leeds players who were promptly hiding their wedding rings uh, and all sorts. It, it was like flies around you-know-what for all of it. And I remember one young lad, young player that they just signed, immediately had his tongue down some poor local girl's throat straight away everyone else was uh was enjoying all the 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 hospitality except one person who i think with um given it was over 20 years ago i won't name names but let's just say he's the dad of the the most uh uh, sought after striker in Europe at the moment had to be led away for, for his teammates because, in amongst all this, he wanted to start a fight. But, uh, but yeah, it was a glimpse of what it's like when, when these footballers do go away, and, and it, it's the memories live with me ever since. Marks, if you're going to tell a story about a pre season tour, can you leave tongues out of it, please? Yeah, no <laughs> problem, mate. 2003, Palace of the Golden Horses, Thailand, Asia Cup. Uh, I think it was uh, two weeks after Roman Abramovich took it. It was a trip nobody wanted to go on. So uh, the paper, I think I was with the Daily Mail at the time, they sent me on it. And uh, it, every single team stayed in there. It was Chelsea, Newcastle, Birmingham. Um, and uh, effectively, we had the run of the place. It was just wonderful. But the, the overriding memory was um, uh, getting home and finding that um, I'd made a call to my brother and uh, under the influence of one or two drinks in which I told him I was in a bar with a shark swimming around it. It basically, in the, above the bar, there was just a massive fish tank where this shark was. And and that was all I told him. And I got back and found out that the call had cost me 69 quid. So, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, yeah, that that, that, that was the best pre-season. <laughs> Brilliant, boys. Right, great stuff. Thanks, as always. Uh, thanks to Andy. Thanks to Neil. Thanks to Matt. And thanks to everyone for listening or watching him. Hopefully we'll see you next week on the Football Digest podcast. Thank you. Bye.